And now, Tarzan of the Apes, Chapter 6, The Light of Knowledge. After what seemed like an eternity to little Tarzan, he was able to walk once more, after the gorilla attack, and from then on his recovery was so rapid that in another month he was as strong and active as ever. During his convalescence he had gone over in his mind many times the battle with the gorilla, and his first thought was to recover the wonderful little weapon which had transformed him from a hopelessly outclassed weakling to the superior of the mighty terror of the jungle. Also, he was anxious to return to the cabin and continue his investigations of its wondrous contents. So, early one morning, he set forth alone upon his quest. After a little search, he located the clean-picked bones of his late adversary, and close by, partly buried beneath the fallen leaves, he found the knife, now red with rust from its exposure to the dampness of the ground and from the dried blood of the gorilla. He did not like the change in its former bright and gleaming surface, but it was still a formidable weapon, and one which he meant to use to advantage whenever the opportunity presented itself. He had in mind that no more would he run from the wanton attacks of old Tublet. In another moment he was at the cabin, and after a short time had again thrown the latch and entered. His first concern was to learn the mechanism of the lock, and this he did by examining it closely while the door was open, so that he could learn precisely what caused it to hold the door, and by what means it released at his touch. He found that he could close and lock the door from within, and this he did, so there would be no chance of his being bothered while at his investigation. He commenced a systematic search of the cabin, and his attention was soon riveted by the books which seemed to exert a strange and powerful influence over him so that he could scarce attend to aught else for the lure of the wondrous puzzle which their purpose presented to him. Among the other books were a primer, some child's readers, numerous picture books, and a great dictionary. All these he examined, but the pictures caught his fancy most, though the strange little bugs which covered the pages where there were no pictures excited his wonder and deepest thought. Squatting upon his haunches, in the tabletop in the cabin his father had built, his smooth, brown, naked little body bent over the book which rested in his strong, slender hands, and his great shock of long black hair falling about his well-shaped head and bright, intelligent eyes. Tarzan of the Apes, little primitive man, presented a picture filled at once with pathos and with promise, an allegorical figure of the primordial groping through the black night of ignorance toward the light of learning. His little face was tense in study, where he had partially grasped, in a hazy, nebulous way, the rudiments of a thought which was destined to prove the key and the solution to the puzzling problem of the strange little bugs. In his hand was a primer opened at a picture of a little ape similar to himself, but covered, except for hands and face, with strange colored fur, for such he thought the jacket and trousers to be. Beneath the picture were three little bugs. B. O. Y. And now he had discovered in the text upon the page that these three were repeated many times in the same sequence. Another fact he learned, that there were comparatively few individual bugs, but these were repeated many times, occasionally alone, but more often in company with others. Slowly he turned the pages, scanning the pictures and the text for a repetition of the combination B-O-Y. Presently he found it beneath the picture of another little ape, and a strange animal which went upon four legs like the jackal. 
Beneath this picture, the bugs appeared as a boy and a dog. There they were, the three little bugs, which always accompanied the little ape. And so he progressed, very, very slowly. For it was a hard and laborious task which he had set himself, without knowing it, a task which might seem to you or me impossible. Learning to read without having the slightest knowledge of letters or written language, or the faintest idea that such things even existed. He did not accomplish it in a day, or in a week, or in a month, or in a year. But slowly, very slowly, he learned after he had grasped the possibilities which lay in those little bugs, so that by the time he was fifteen he knew the various combinations of letters which stood for every pictured figure in the little primer, and in one or two of the picture books. Of the meaning and use of the articles and conjunctions, verbs and adverbs and pronouns, he had but the faintest conception. One day when he was about twelve, he found a number of lead pencils in a hitherto undiscovered drawer beneath the table, and in scratching upon the tabletop with one of them, he was delighted to discover the black line it left behind it. He worked so assiduously with this new toy that the tabletop was soon a mass of scrawly loops and irregular lines, and his pencil point worn down to the wood. Then he took another pencil, but this time he had a definite object in view. He would attempt to reproduce some of the little bugs that scrambled over the pages of his books. It was a difficult task, for he held the pencil as one would grasp the hilt of a dagger, which does not add greatly to ease in writing, or to the legibility of the results. But he persevered for months, at such times as he was able to come to the cabin, until at last, by repeated experimenting, he found a position in which to hold the pencil that best permitted him to guide and control it, so that at last he could roughly reproduce any of the little bugs. Thus he made a beginning of writing. Copying the bugs taught him another thing, their number, and though he could not count as we understand it, yet he had an idea of quantity, the base of his calculations being the number of fingers upon one of his hands. His search through the various books convinced him that he had discovered all the different kinds of bugs most often repeated in combination, and these he arranged in proper order with great ease because of the frequency which he had perused the fascinating alphabet picture book. His education progressed, but his greatest finds were in the inexhaustible storehouse of the huge illustrated dictionary, for he learned more through the medium of pictures than text, even after he had grasped the significance of the bugs. When he discovered the arrangement of words in alphabetical order, he delighted in searching for and finding the combinations with which he was familiar, and the words which followed them, their definitions, led him still further into the mazes of erudition. By the time he was seventeen, he had learned to read the simple child's primer and had fully realized the true and wonderful purpose of the little bugs. No longer did he feel shame for his hairless body or his human features, for now his reason told him he was of a different race from his wild and hairy companions. He was a M-A-N. They were A-P-E-S. And the little apes which scurried through the forest top were M-O-N. K-E-Y-S. He knew, too, that Old Saber was a L-I-O-N-E-S-S, and Hista a S-N-A-K-E, and Tantor an E-L-E-P-H-A-N-T, 
and so he learned to read. From then on, his progress was rapid. With the help of the great dictionary and the active intelligence of a healthy mind endowed by inheritance with more than ordinary reasoning powers, he shrewdly guessed at much which he could not really understand, and more often than not, his guesses were close to the mark of truth. There were many breaks in his education caused by the migratory habits of his tribe, but even when removed from his books, his active brain continued to search out the mysteries of his fascinating avocation. Pieces of bark and flat leaves and even smooth stretches of bare earth provided him with copybooks whereon to scratch with the point of his hunting knife the lessons he was learning. Nor did he neglect the sterner duties of life while following the bent of his inclination toward the solving of the mystery of his library. He practiced with his rope and played with his sharp knife, which he had learned to keep keen by wetting upon flat stone. The tribe had grown larger since Tarzan had come among them, for under the leadership of Kerchak they had been able to frighten the other tribes from their part of the jungle, so that they had plenty to eat and little or no loss from predatory incursions of neighbors. Chapter 7 The Dance of Death The tribe had grown larger since Tarzan had come among them, for under the leadership of Kerchak they had been able to frighten the other tribes from their part of the jungle, so that they had plenty to eat and little or no loss from predatory incursions of neighbors. Hence, the younger males, as they became adult, found it more comfortable to take mates from their own tribe, or if they captured one of another tribe, to bring her back to Kerchak's band and live in amity with him, rather than attempt to set up new establishments of their own, or fight with the redoubtable Kerchak for his supremacy at home. Occasionally, one more ferocious than his fellows would attempt this latter alternative, but none had come yet who could wrest the palm of victory from the fierce and brutal ape Kerchak. Tarzan held a peculiar position in the tribe. They seemed to consider him one of them, and yet in some way different. The older males either ignored him entirely, or else hated him so vindictively that but for his wondrous agility and speed, and the fierce protection of the huge Kala, he would have been dispatched at an early age. Tublet was his most consistent enemy, but it was through Tublet that, when he was about thirteen, the persecution of his enemies suddenly ceased, and he was left severely alone, except on the occasions when one of them ran amuck in the throes of one of those strange, wild fits of insane rage which attacks the males of many of the fiercer animals of the jungle. Then, none was safe. On the day that Tarzan established his right to respect, the tribe was gathered about a small natural amphitheater which the jungle had left free from its entangling vines and creepers in a hollow among some low hills. The open space was almost circular in shape. Upon every hand rose the mighty giants of the untouched forest, with the matted undergrowth banked so closely between the huge trunks that the only opening into the little level arena was through the upper branches of the trees. Here, safe from interruption, the tribe often gathered. In the center of the amphitheater was one of those strange earthen drums which the anthropoids built for the queer rites, the sounds of which men have heard in the fastnesses of the jungle, but which none has ever witnessed. Many travelers have seen the drums of the great apes, and some have heard the sounds of their beating and the noise of the wild, weird revelry of these first lords of the jungle. But Tarzan, Lord Greystoke, is, doubtless, the only human being who ever joined in the fierce, mad, intoxicating revel 
of the dumb dumb. From this primitive function has arisen, unquestionably, all the forms and ceremonials of modern church and state. For through all the countless ages, back beyond the uttermost ramparts of a dawning humanity, our fierce, hairy forebears danced out the rites of the dum-dum to the sound of their earthen drums, beneath the bright light of a tropical moon, in the depth of a mighty jungle, which stands unchanged today as it stood on that long-forgotten night in the dim, unthinkable vistas of the long-dead past, when our first shaggy ancestor swung from a swaying bough and dropped lightly upon the soft turf of the first meeting place. On the day that Tarzan won his emancipation from the persecution that had followed him remorselessly for twelve of his thirteen years of life, the tribe, now a full hundred strong, trooped silently through the lower terrace of the jungle trees and dropped noiselessly upon the floor of the amphitheater. The rites of the dum-dum marked important events in the life of the tribe. A victory, the capture of a prisoner, the killing of some large fierce denizen of the jungle, the death or accession of a king, and were conducted with set ceremonialism. Today it was the killing of a giant ape, the member of another tribe, and as the people of Kerchak entered the arena, two mighty bulls were seen bearing the body of the vanquished between them. They laid their burden before the earthen drum and then squatted there beside it as guards, while the other members of the community curled themselves in grassy nooks to sleep until the rising moon should give the signal for the commencement of their savage orgy. For hours absolute quiet reigned in the little clearing, except as it was broken by the discordant notes of brilliantly feathered parrots, or the screeching and twittering of a thousand jungle birds flitting ceaselessly amongst the vivid orchids and flamboyant blossoms which festooned the myriad moss-covered branches of the forest kings. At length, as darkness settled upon the jungle, the apes commenced to bestir themselves, and soon they formed a great circle about the earthen drum. The females and young squatted in a thin line at the outer periphery of the circle, while just in front of them ranged the adult males. Before the drum sat three old females, each armed with a knotted branch fifteen or eighteen inches in length. Slowly and softly they began tapping upon the resounding surface of the drum, as the first faint rays of the ascending moon silvered the encircling treetops. As the light in the amphitheater increased, the females augmented the frequency and force of their blows, until presently a wild rhythmic din pervaded the great jungle for miles in every direction. Huge, fierce brutes stopped in their hunting, with up-pricked ears and raised heads, to listen to the dull booming that betokened the dum-dum of the apes. Occasionally one would raise his shrill scream or thunderous roar in answering challenge to the savage din of the anthropoids, but none came near to investigate or attack, for the great apes, assembled in all the power of their numbers, filled the breasts of their jungle neighbors with deep respect. As the din of the drum rose to almost deafening volume, Kerchak sprang into the open space between the squatting males and the drummers. Standing erect, he threw his head far back, and looking full into the eye of the rising moon, he beat upon his breast with his great hairy paws, and emitted his fearful, roaring shriek. Once, twice, thrice, that terrifying cry rang out across the teeming solitude of that unspeakably quick, yet unthinkably dead world. 
Then, crouching, Kerchak slunk noiselessly around the open circle, veering far away from the dead body lying before the altar drum. But as he passed, keeping his little, fierce, wicked, red eyes upon the corpse. Another male then sprang into the arena, and repeating the horrid cries of his king, followed stealthily in his wake. Another and another followed in quick succession until the jungle reverberated with the now almost ceaseless notes of their bloodthirsty screams. It was the challenge and the hunt. When all the adult males had joined in the thin line of circling dancers, the attack commenced. Kerchak, seizing a huge club from the pile which lay at hand for the purpose, rushed furiously upon the dead ape, dealing the corpse a terrific blow, at the same time emitting the growls and snarls of combat. The din of the drum was now increased, as well as the frequency of the blows, and the warriors, as each approached the victim of the hunt and delivered his bludgeon blow, joined in the mad whirl of the death dance. Tarzan was one of the wild, leaping horde. His brown, sweat-streaked, muscular body, glistening in the moonlight, shone supple and graceful among the uncouth, awkward, hairy brutes around him. None was more stealthy in the mimic hunt, none more ferocious than he in the wild ferocity of the attack, none who leaped so high into the air in the dance of death. As the noise and rapidity of the drum beats increased, the dancers apparently became intoxicated with the wild rhythm and the savage yells. Their leaps and bounds increased, their bared fangs dripped saliva, and their lips and breasts were flecked with foam. For half an hour the weird dance went on, until, at a sign from Kerchak, the noise of the drum ceased. The female drummers scampering hurriedly through the line of dancers toward the outer rim of squatting spectators. Then, as one, the males rushed headlong upon the thing which their terrific blows had reduced to a mass of hairy pulp. Flesh seldom came to their jaws in satisfying quantities, so a fit finale to their wild revel was a taste of fresh-killed meat, and it was to the purpose of devouring their late enemy that they now turned their attention. Great fangs sunk into the carcass, tearing away huge hunks, the mightiest of the apes obtaining the choicest morsels while the weaker circled the outer edge of the fighting, snarling pack awaiting their chance to dodge in and snatch a dropped tidbit or filter remaining bone before all was gone. Tarzan, more than the apes, craved and needed flesh. Descended from a race of meat-eaters, never in his life, he thought, had he once satisfied his appetite for animal food, and now his agile little body wormed its way far into the mass of struggling, rending apes in an endeavor to obtain a share which his strength would have been unequal to the task of winning for him. At his side hung the hunting knife of his unknown father in a sheath, self-fashioned and copy of one he'd seen among the pictures of his treasure books. At last he released the fast-disappearing feast, and with his sharp knife slashed off a more generous portion than he had hoped for, an entire hairy forearm, where it protruded from beneath the feet of the mighty Kerchak, who was so busily engaged in perpetuating the royal prerogative of gluttony that he failed to note the act of less majest. So little Tarzan wriggled out from beneath the struggling mass, clutching his grisly prize close to his breast. Among those circling futilely the outskirts of the banqueters was old Tublet. He'd been among the first at the feast, but had retreated with a goodly share to eat in quiet and was now forcing his way back for more. And so it was that he spied Tarzan as the boy emerged from a clawing, pushing throng with that hairy forearm 
hugged firmly to his body. Tublet's little close-set, bloodshot pig eyes shot wicked gleams of hate as they fell upon the object of his loathing. In them, too, was greed for the toothsome dainty the boy carried. But Tarzan saw his arch-enemy as quickly, and divining what the great beast would do, he leaped nimbly away toward the females and the young, hoping to hide himself among them. Tublet, however, was close upon his heels, so that he had no opportunity to seek a place of concealment, but saw that he would be put to it to escape at all. Swiftly he sped toward the surrounding trees, and with an agile bound, gained a lower limb with one hand, and then, transferring his burden to his teeth, he climbed rapidly upward, closely followed by Tublet. Up, up he went to the waving pinnacle of a lofty monarch of the forest, where his heavy pursuer dared not follow him. There he perched, hurling taunts and insults at the raging, foaming beast fifty feet below him. And then, Tublet went mad. With horrifying screams and roars, he rushed to the ground, among the females and young, sinking his great fangs into a dozen tiny necks and tearing great pieces from the backs and breasts of the females who fell into his clutches. In the brilliant moonlight, Tarzan witnessed the whole mad carnival of raid. He saw the females and the young scamper to the safety of the trees. Then the great bulls in the center of the arena felt the mighty fangs of their demented fellow, and with one accord, they melted into the black shadows of the overhanging forest. There was but one in the amphitheater beside Tublet, a belated female running swiftly toward the tree where Tarzan perched, and close behind her came the awful Tublet. It was Kala, and as quickly as Tarzan saw that Tublet was gaining on her, he dropped with the rapidity of a falling stone from branch to branch toward his foster mother. Now she was beneath the overhanging limbs, and close above her crouched Tarzan, waiting the outcome of the race. She leaped into the air, grasping a low-hanging branch, but almost over the head of Tublet, so nearly had he distanced her. She should have been safe now, but there was a rending, tearing sound. The branch broke and precipitated her full upon the head of Tublet, knocking him to the ground. Both were up in an instant, but as quick as they had been, Tarzan had been quicker, so that the infuriated bull found himself facing the man-child who stood between him and Kala. Nothing could have suited the fierce beast better, and with a roar of triumph, he leaped upon the little Lord Greystoke. But his fangs never closed in that nut-brown flesh. A muscular hand shot out and grasped the hairy throat, and another plunged a keen hunting knife into its broad breast. Like lightning, the blows fell, and only ceased when Tarzan felt the limp form crumple beneath him. As the body rolled to the ground, Tarzan of the apes placed his foot upon the neck of his lifelong enemy, and, raising his eyes to the full moon, threw back his fierce young head and voiced the wild and terrible cry of his people. One by one, the tribe swung down from their arboreal retreats and formed a circle about Tarzan and his vanquished foe. When they had all come, Tarzan turned toward them. I am Tarzan, he cried. I am a great killer. Let all respect Tarzan of the apes and Kala his mother. There be none among you as mighty as Tarzan. Let his enemies beware. Looking full into the wicked red eyes of Kerchak, the young Lord Greystoke beat upon his mighty breast and screamed out once more his shrill cry of defiance. 
Chapter 8 The Treetop Hunter The morning after the dum-dum, the tribe started slowly back through the forest toward the coast. The body of Tublet lay where it had fallen, for the people of Kerchak do not eat their own dead. The march was but a leisurely search for food. Cabbage palm and gray plum, pizang and skidamine they found in abundance, with wild pineapple, and occasionally small mammals, birds, eggs, reptiles, and insects. The nuts they cracked between their powerful jaws, or, if too hard, broke by pounding between stones. Once old Sabre, crossing their path, sent them scurrying to the safety of the higher branches, for if she respected their number and their sharp fangs, they, on their part, held her cruel and mighty ferocity in equal esteem. Upon a low-hanging branch sat Tarzan, directly above the majestic, supple body, as it forged silently through the thick jungle. He hurled a pineapple at the ancient enemy of his people. The great beast stopped, and turning, eyed the taunting figure above her. With an angry lash of her tail, she bared her yellow fangs, curling her great lips in a hideous snarl that wrinkled her bristling snout in serried ridges and closed her wicked eyes to two narrow slits of rage and hatred. With back-laid ears, she looked straight into the eyes of Tarzan of the Apes and sounded her fierce, shrill challenge. And from the safety of his overhanging limb, the ape-child sent back the fearsome answer of his kind. For a moment, the two eyed each other in silence, and then the great cat turned into the jungle, which swallowed her as the ocean engulfs a tossed pebble. But into the mind of Tarzan, a great plan sprang. He had killed the fierce tublet, so was he not therefore a mighty fighter? Now would he track down the crafty saber and slay her likewise? He would be a mighty hunter also. At the bottom of his little English heart beat the great desire to cover his nakedness with clothes, for he had learned from his picture books that all men were so covered, while monkeys and apes and every other living thing went naked. Clothes, therefore, must be truly a badge of greatness, the insignia of the superiority of man over all animals, for surely there could be no other reason for wearing the hideous things. Many moons ago, when he had been much smaller, he had desired the skin of Saber, the lioness, or Numa, the lion, or Sheeta, the leopard, to cover his hairless body, that he might no longer resemble hideous Hista, the snake. But now he was proud of his sleek skin, for it betokened his descent from a mighty race, and the conflicting desires to go naked in prideful proof of his ancestry, or to conform to the customs of his own kind, and wear hideous and uncomfortable apparel, found first one, and then the other, in the ascendancy. As the tribe continued their slow way through the forest after the passing of Saber, Tarzan's head was filled with his great scheme for slaying his enemy, and for many days thereafter, he thought of little else. On this day, however, he presently had other and more immediate interests to attract his attention. Suddenly it became as midnight. The noises of the jungle ceased. The trees stood motionless as though in paralyzed expectancy of some great and imminent disaster. All nature waited, but not for long. Faintly, from a distance, came a low, sad moaning. Nearer and nearer it approached, mounting louder and louder in volume. The great trees bent in unison as though pressed earthward by a mighty hand. Farther and farther toward the ground they inclined, and still there was no sound save the deep and awesome moaning of the wind. 
Then, suddenly, the jungle giants whipped back, lashing their mighty tops in angry and deafening protest. A vivid and blinding light flashed from the whirling inky clouds above. The deep cannonade of roaring thunder belched forth its fearsome challenge. The deluge came. All hell broke loose upon the jungle. The tribe, shivering from the cold rain, huddled at the bases of great trees. The lightning, darting and flashing through the blackness, showed wildly waving branches, whipping streamers, and bending trunks. Now and again, some ancient patriarch of the woods, rent by a flashing bolt, would crash in a thousand pieces among the surrounding trees, carrying down numberless branches and many smaller neighbors to add to the tangled confusion of the tropical jungle. Branches great and small, torn away by the ferocity of the tornado, hurtled through the wildly waving verdure, carrying death and destruction to countless unhappy denizens of the thickly peopled world below. For hours the fury of the storm continued without surcease, and still the tribe huddled close in shivering fear. In constant danger from falling trunks and branches, and paralyzed by the vivid flashing of lightning and bellowing of thunder, they crouched in pitiful misery until the storm passed. The end was as sudden as the beginning. The wind seized, the sun shone forth, and nature smiled once more. The dripping leaves and branches and the moist petals of gorgeous flowers glistened in the splendor of the returning day. And so, as nature forgot, her children forgot also. Busy life went on as it had been before the darkness and the fright. But to Tarzan, a dawning light had come to explain the mystery of clothes. How snug he would have been beneath the heavy coat of saber. And so was added a further incentive to the adventure. For several months the tribe hovered near the beach where stood Tarzan's cabin, and his studies took up the greater portion of his time. But always when journeying through the forest he kept his rope in readiness, and many were the smaller animals that fell into the snare of the quick-thrown noose. Once it fell about the short neck of Horta, the boar, and his mad lunge for freedom toppled Tarzan from the overhanging limb where he had lain in wait, and from whence he had launched his sinuous coil. The mighty tusker turned at the sound of his falling body, and seeing only the easy prey of a young ape, he lowered his head and charged madly at the surprised youth. Tarzan, happily, was uninjured by the fall, alighting cat-like upon all fours, far outspread to take up the shock. He was on his feet in an instant, and leaping with the agility of the monkey he was, he gained the safety of a low limb as Horta, the boar, rushed futilely beneath. Thus it was that Tarzan learned by experience the limitations as well as the possibilities of his strange weapon. He lost a long rope on this occasion, but he knew that had it been Saber who had thus dragged him from his perch, the outcome might have been very different, for he would have lost his life, doubtless, into the bargain. It took him many days to braid a new rope, but when finally it was done, he went forth purposely to hunt and lie in wait among the dense foliage of a great branch right above the well-beaten trail that led to water. Several small animals passed unharmed beneath him. He did not watch such insignificant game. It would take a strong animal to test the efficiency of his new scheme. At last came she whom Tarzan sought, with lithe sinews rolling beneath shimmering hide. Fat and glossy came Saber, the lioness. 
Her great padded feet fell soft and noiseless on the narrow trail. Her head was high in ever alert attention. Her long tail moved slowly in sinuous and graceful undulations. Nearer and nearer she came to where Tarzan of the Apes crouched upon his limb, the coils of his long rope poised ready in his hand. Like a thing of bronze, motionless as death, sat Tarzan. Saber passed beneath. One stride beyond she took, a second, a third, and then the silent coil shot out above her. For an instant the spreading noose hung above her head like a great snake, and then, as she looked upward to detect the origin of the swishing sound of the rope, it settled about her neck. With a quick jerk, Tarzan snapped the noose tight about the glossy throat, and then he dropped the rope and clung to his support with both hands. Saber was trapped. With a bound, the startled beast turned into the jungle, but Tarzan was not to lose another rope through the same cause as the first. He had learned from experience. The lioness had taken but half her second bound when she felt the rope tighten about her neck. Her body turned completely over in the air, and she fell with a heavy crash upon her back. Tarzan had fastened the end of the rope securely to the trunk of the great tree on which he sat. Thus far, his plan had worked to perfection, but when he grasped the rope, bracing himself behind a crotch of two mighty branches, he found that dragging the mighty, struggling, clawing, biting, screaming mass of iron muscle fury up to the tree and hanging her was a very different proposition. The weight of old Saber was immense, and when she braced her huge paws, nothing less than Tantor the elephant himself could have budged her. The lioness was now back in the path where she could see the author of the indignity which had been placed upon her. Screaming with rage, she suddenly charged, leaping high into the air toward Tarzan, but when her huge body struck the limb on which Tarzan had been, Tarzan was no longer there. Instead, he perched lightly upon a smaller branch, twenty feet above the raging captive. So for a moment, Saber hung half across the branch, while Tarzan mocked and hurled twigs and branches at her unprotected face. Presently, the beast dropped to the earth again, and Tarzan came quickly to seize the rope. But Saber had now found that it was only a slender cord that held her, and grasping it in her huge jaws, severed it before Tarzan could tighten the strangling noose a second time. Tarzan was much hurt. His well-laid plan had come to naught, so he sat there screaming at the roaring creature beneath him and making mocking grimaces at it. Saber paced back and forth beneath the tree for hours. Four times she crouched and sprang at the dancing sprite above her, but might as well have clutched at the elusive wind that murmured through the treetops. At last Tarzan tired of the sport, and with a parting roar of challenge and a well-aimed ripe fruit that spread soft and sticky over the snarling face of his enemy, he swung rapidly through the trees, a hundred feet above the ground, and in a short time was among the members of his tribe. Here he recounted the details of his adventure, with swelling chest and so considerable swagger that he quite impressed even his bitterest enemies, while Kala fairly danced for joy and pride. Tarzan of the Apes lived on in his wild jungle existence with little change for several years, only that he grew stronger and wiser, and learned from his books more and more of the strange worlds which lay somewhere outside his primeval forest. To him life was never monotonous or stale. There was always Pisa, the fish, to be caught in the many streams and the little lakes, and Saber, with her ferocious cousins to keep one ever on the alert 
and give zest to every instant that one spent upon the ground. Often they hunted him, and more often he hunted them, but though they never quite reached him with those cruel, sharp claws of theirs, yet there were times when one could scarce have passed a thick leaf between their talons and his smooth hide. Quick was Saber, the lioness, and quick were Numa and Sheeta, but Tarzan of the Apes was lightning. With Tantor the elephant he made friends. How? Ask not, but this is known to the denizens of the jungle, that on many moonlit nights Tarzan of the Apes and Tantor the elephant walked together, and where the way was clear Tarzan rode, perched high upon Tantor's mighty back. Many days during these years he spent in the cabin of his father, where still lay, untouched, the bones of his parents and the skeleton of Kala's baby. At eighteen he read fluently, and understood nearly all he read in the many and varied volumes on the shelves. Also could he write, with printed letters, rapidly and plainly, but script he had not mastered, for though there were several copybooks among his treasure, there was so little written English in the cabin that he saw no use for bothering with this other form of writing, though he could read it laboriously. Thus at eighteen we find him an English lordling who could speak no English, and yet who could read and write his native language. Never had he seen a human being other than himself, for the little area traversed by his tribe was watered by no greater river to bring down the savage natives of the interior. High hills shut it off on three sides, the ocean on the fourth. It was alive with lions and leopards and poisonous snakes. Its untouched mazes of matted jungle had as yet invited no hardy pioneer from human beasts beyond its frontier. But as Tarzan of the Apes sat one day in the cabin of his father, delving into the mysteries of a new book, the ancient security of his jungle was broken forever. At the far eastern confine, a strange cavalcade strung in single file over the brow of a low hill. In advance were fifty black warriors armed with slender wooden spears with ends hard-baked over slow fires and low bows and poisoned arrows. On their backs were oval shields, and their noses huge rings, while from the will of their heads protruded tufts of colored feathers. Across their foreheads were tattooed three parallel lines of color, and on each breast three concentric circles. Their yellow teeth were filed to sharp points, and their great protruding lips added still further to the low and bestial brutishness of their appearance. Following them were several hundred women and children, the former bearing upon their heads great burdens of cooking pots, household utensils, and ivory. In the rear were a hundred warriors, similar in all respects to the advance guard. That they more greatly feared an attack from the rear than whatever unknown enemies lurked in their advance was evidenced by the formation of the column, and such was the fact, for they were fleeing from the white man's soldiers who had so harassed them for rubber and ivory that they had turned upon their conquerors one day and massacred a white officer and a small detachment of his black troops. For many days they had gorged themselves on meat, but eventually a stronger body of troops had come and fallen upon their village by night to revenge the death of their comrades. That night the black soldiers of the white man had had meat aplenty, and this little remnant of a once powerful tribe had slunk off into the gloomy jungle toward the unknown and freedom. But that which meant freedom and the pursuit of happiness to these savage blacks meant consternation and death to many of the wild denizens of their new home. For three days, the little cavalcade marched slowly through the heart of this unknown and untracked forest, 
until finally, early on the fourth day, they came upon a little spot near the banks of a small river, which seemed less thickly overgrown than any ground they had yet encountered. Here they set to work to build a new village, and in a month a great clearing had been made, huts and palisades erected, plantains, yams, and maize planted, and they had taken up their old life in their new home. Here there were no white men, no soldiers, nor any rubber or ivory to be gathered for cruel and thankless taskmasters. Several moons passed by ere the natives ventured far into the territory surrounding their new village. Several had already fallen prey to old Sabre, and because the jungle was so infested with these fierce and bloodthirsty cats, and with lions and leopards, the ebony warriors hesitated to trust themselves far from the safety of their palisades. But one day, Kulanga, a son of the old king, Umbanga, wandered far into the dense mazes to their west. Warily he stepped, his slender lance ever ready, his long oval shield firmly grasped in his left hand, close to his sleek ebony body. At his back, his bow, and in the quiver upon his shield, many slim, straight arrows, well smeared with the thick, dark, tarry substance that rendered deadly their tiniest needle prick. Night found Kulanga far from the palisades of his father's village, but still headed westward, and climbing into the fork of a great tree, he fashioned a rude platform and curled himself for sleep. Three miles to the west, slept the tribe of Kerchak. Early the next morning the apes were astir, moving through the jungle in search of food. Tarzan, as was his custom, prosecuted his search in the direction of the cabin, so that by leisurely hunting on the way, his stomach was filled by the time he reached the beach. The apes scattered by ones and twos and threes in all directions, but ever within a sound of a signal of an alarm. Kala had moved slowly along an elephant track toward the east and was busily engaged in turning over rotted limbs and logs in search of succulent bugs and fungi, when the faintest shadow of a strange noise brought her to startled attention. For fifty yards before her, the trail was straight, and down this leafy tunnel she saw the stealthy, advancing figure of a strange and fearful creature. The creature was Kulanga. Kala did not wait to see more, but turning, moved rapidly back along the trail. She did not run, but after the manner of her kind, when not aroused, sought rather to avoid than to escape. Close after her came Kulanga. Here was meat. He could make a killing and feast well this day. On he hurried, his spear poised for the throw. At a turning of the trail, he came in sight of her again upon another straight stretch. His spear hand went far back, his muscles rolled, lightning-like, beneath the sleek hide. Out shot the arm, and the spear sped toward Kala. A poor cast, but it grazed her side. With a cry of rage and pain, the she-ape turned upon her tormentor. In an instant, the trees were crashing beneath the weight of her hurrying fellows, swinging rapidly toward the scene of trouble in answer to Kala's scream. As she charged, Kulanga unslung his bow and fitted an arrow with an almost unthinkable quickness. Drawing the shaft far back, he drove the poisoned missile straight into the heart of the great anthropoid. With a horrid scream, Kala plunged forward upon her face before the astonished members of her tribe. Roaring and shrieking, the apes dashed toward Kulanga, but that wary savage was fleeing down the trail like a frightened antelope. 
He knew something of the ferocity of these wild, hairy men, and his one desire was to put as many miles between himself and them as he possibly could. They followed him, racing through the trees for a long distance, but finally, one by one, they abandoned the chase and returned to the scene of the tragedy. None of them had ever seen a man before, other than Tarzan, and so they wondered vaguely what strange manner of creature it might be that had invaded their jungle. On the far beach by the little cabin, Tarzan heard the faint echoes of the conflict, and knowing that something was seriously amiss among the tribe, he hastened rapidly toward the direction of the sound. When he arrived, he found the entire tribe gathered, jabbering about the dead body of his slain mother. Tarzan's grief and anger were unbounded. He roared out his hideous challenge time and time again. He beat upon his great chest with his clenched fist, and then he fell upon the body of Kala and sobbed out the pitiful sorrowing of his lonely heart. To lose the only creature in all this world who ever had manifested love and affection for him was the greatest tragedy he had ever known. What though Kala was a fierce and hideous ape? To Tarzan she had been kind and she had been beautiful. Upon her he had lavished, unknown to himself, all the reverence and respect and love that a normal English boy feels for his own mother. Had he never known another, and so Takala was given, though mutely, all that would have belonged to the fair and lovely lady Alice had she lived. After the first outburst of grief, Tarzan controlled himself and questioning the members of his tribe who had witnessed the killing of Kala, he learned all that their meager vocabulary could convey. It was enough, however, for his needs. He told him of a strange, hairless, black ape with feathers growing upon its head, who launched death from a slender branch and then ran with the fleetness of Bara, the deer, toward the rising sun. Tarzan waited no longer, but leaping into the branches of the trees, sped rapidly through the forest. He knew the windings of the elephant trail along which Kala's murderer had flown, and so he cut straight through the jungle to intercept the black warrior who was evidently following the tortuous detours of the trail. At his side was the hunting knife of his unknown sire, and across his shoulders the coils of his own long rope. In an hour he struck the trail again, and coming to earth examined the soil minutely. In the soft mud on the bank of a tiny rivulet, he found footprints such as he alone in all the jungle had ever made, but much larger than his. His heart beat fast. Could it be that he was trailing a man, one of his own race? There were two sets of imprints pointed in opposite directions, so his quarry had already passed on his return along the trail. As he examined the newer spore, a tiny particle of earth toppled from the outer edge of one of the footprints to the bottom of its shallow depression. Ah, telling him, the trail was very fresh. His prey must have been scarcely passed. Tarzan swung himself to the trees once more, and with swift noiselessness sped along high above the trail. He had covered barely a mile when he came upon the black warrior standing in a little open space. In his hand was his slender bow to which he had fitted one of his death-dealing arrows. Opposite him, across the little clearing, stood Horta, the boar, with lowered head and foam-flecked tusks, ready to charge. Tarzan looked with wonder upon the strange creature beneath him, so like him in form, and yet so different in face and color. His books had portrayed the African native, 
But how different had been the dull, dead print to this sleek thing of ebony, pulsing with life. As the men stood there with taut, drawn bow, Tarzan recognized him not so much as the native as the archer of his picture book. A stands for archer. How wonderful! Tarzan almost betrayed his presence in the deep excitement of his discovery. But things were commencing to happen below him. The sinewy black arm had drawn the shaft far back. Horta, the boar, was charging, and then the black released a little poisoned arrow, and Tarzan saw it fly with the quickness of thought and lodge in the bristling neck of the boar. Scarcely had the shaft left his bow ere Kulanga had fitted another to it, but Horta, the boar, was upon him so quickly that he had no time to discharge it. With a bound, the native leaped entirely over the rushing beast and, turning with incredible swiftness, planted a second arrow in Horta's back. Then Kulanga sprang into a nearby tree. Horta wheeled to charge his enemy once more. A dozen steps he took. Then he staggered and fell upon his side. For a moment his muscles stiffened and relaxed convulsively. He then lay still. Kulanga came down from his tree. With a knife that hung at his side, he cut several large pieces from the boar's body, and in the center of the trail he built a fire, cooking and eating as much as he wanted. The rest he left where it had fallen. Tarzan was an interested spectator. His desire to kill burned fiercely in his wild breast, but his desire to learn was even greater. He would follow this savage creature for a while and know from whence it came. He could kill him at his leisure later, when the bow and deadly arrows were laid aside. When Kalanga had finished his repast and disappeared beyond a near turning of the path, Tarzan dropped quietly to the ground. With his knife he severed many strips of meat from Horta's carcass, but he did not cook them. He had seen fire, but only when Ara, the lightning, had destroyed some great tree. That any creature of the jungle could produce the red and yellow fangs which devoured wood and left nothing but fine dust surprised Tarzan greatly, and why the black warrior had ruined his delicious repast by plunging it into the blighting heat was quite beyond Tarzan. Possibly Era was a friend with whom the archer was sharing his food. Be that as it may, Tarzan would not ruin good meat in any such foolish manner, so he gobbled down a great quantity of the raw flesh, burying the balance of the carcass beside the trail where he could find it upon his return. And then Lord Greystoke wiped his greasy fingers upon his naked thighs and took up the trail of Kulanga, the son of Mbanga, the king, while in far-off London another Lord Greystoke, the younger brother of the real Lord Greystoke's father, sent back his chops to the club's chef because they were underdone. And when he had finished his repast, he dipped his finger ends into a silver bowl of scented water and dried them upon a piece of snowy damask. All day Tarzan followed Kulanga, hovering above him in the trees like some malign spirit. Twice more he saw him hurl his arrows of destruction, once at Dango the hyena, and again at Manu the monkey. In each instant the animal died almost instantly, for Kulanga's poison was very fresh and very deadly. Tarzan thought much on this wondrous method of slaying as he swung slowly along at a safe distance behind his quarry. He knew that alone, the tiny prick of the arrow could not so quickly dispatch these wild things of the jungle, who were often torn and scratched and gored in a frightful manner as they fought with their jungle neighbors, yet as often recovered as not. No, 
There was something mysterious connected with these tiny slivers of wood which could bring death by a mere scratch. He must look into that matter. That night, Kulanga slept in the crotch of a mighty tree, and far above him crouched Tarzan of the Apes. When Kulanga awoke, he found that his bow and arrows had disappeared. The black warrior was furious and frightened, but more frightened than furious. He searched the ground below the tree, and he searched the tree above the ground, but there was no sign of either bow or arrows, or of the nocturnal marauder. Kulanga was panic-stricken. His spear he had hurled at Kala and had not recovered, and now that his bow and arrows were gone, he was defenseless except for a single knife. His only hope lay in reaching the village of Umbanga as quickly as his legs would carry him. That he was not far from home he was certain, so he took the trail at a rapid trot. From a great mass of impenetrable foliage a few yards away emerged Tarzan of the Apes to swing quietly in his wake. Kulanga's bow and arrows were securely tied high in the top of a giant tree from which a patch of bark had been removed by a sharp knife near to the ground and a branch half cut through and left hanging about fifty feet higher up. Thus Tarzan blazed the forest trails and marked his catches. As Kulanga continued his journey, Tarzan closed on him until he traveled almost over the black's head. His rope he now held coiled in his right hand. He was almost ready for the kill. The moment was delayed only because Tarzan was anxious to ascertain the black warrior's destination, and presently... He was rewarded, for they came suddenly in view of a great clearing, at one end of which lay many strange lairs. Tarzan was directly over Kulanga as he made the discovery. The forest ended abruptly, and beyond lay two hundred yards of planted fields between the jungle and the village. Tarzan must act quickly, or his prey would be gone. But Tarzan's life training left so little space between decision and action when an emergency confronted him, that there was not even room for the shadow of a thought between. So it was that as Kulanga emerged from the shadow of the jungle, a slender coil of rope sped sinuously above him from the lowest branch of a mighty tree directly upon the edge of the fields of Umbanga. And ere the king's son had taken a half dozen steps into the clearing, a quick noose tightened about his neck. So quickly did Tarzan of the Apes drag back his prey that Kulanga's cry of alarm was throttled in his windpipe. Hand over hand, Tarzan drew the struggling black until he had him hanging by his neck in midair. Then Tarzan climbed to a larger branch, drawing the still threshing victim well up into the sheltering verdure of the tree. Here he fastened the rope securely to a stout branch, and then, descending, plunged his hunting knife into Kalanga's heart. Kala was avenged. Tarzan examined the black minutely, for he had never seen any other human being. The knife with its sheath and belt caught his eye. He appropriated them. A copper anklet also took his fancy, and this he transferred to his own leg. He examined and admired the tattooing on the forehead and breast. He marveled at the sharp, filed teeth. He investigated and appropriated the feathered headdress, and then he prepared to get down to business, for Tarzan of the Apes was hungry, and here was meat, meat of the kill, which jungle ethics permitted him to eat. How may we judge him? By what standards this ape-man with the heart and head and body of an English gentleman and the training of a wild beast? Tublet, whom he had hated and who had hated him, 
He had killed in a fair fight, and yet never had the thought of eating Tublet's flesh entered his head. It would have been as revolting to him as his cannibalism to us. But who was Kulanga that he might not be eaten as fairly as Horta the boar, or Bera the deer? Was he not simply another of the countless wild things of the jungle who preyed upon one another to satisfy the cravings of hunger? Suddenly, a strange doubt stayed his hand. Had not his books taught him that he was a man, and was not the archer a man also? Did men eat men? Alas, he did not know. Why then this hesitancy? Once more he essayed the effort, but a qualm of nausea overwhelmed him. He did not understand. All he knew was that he could not eat the flesh of this black man, and thus hereditary instinct, ages old, usurped the functions of his untaught mind and saved him from transgressing a worldwide law of whose very existence he was ignorant. Quickly he lowered Kulanga's body to the ground, removed the noose, and took to the trees again. Join us next week for Chapter 10, The Fear Phantom, with Tarzan of the Apes. And please do take a moment to send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We appreciate your reviews very much, and they help us to get new fans to our story. Stay tuned next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for more of Tarzan of the Apes. Thanks for joining us.